You're entering a lifestyle arrangement and it's not an investment in property, generally speaking. So it's important to understand what you're paying for it. Listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 256 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. With time, your clients will age, and retirement villages become an option. The contract for these retirement villages is often well over 100 pages long and very confusing. So I asked John Saunders of the Pitwater Partnership to tell you what to look out for. Today I'm talking about different retirement living options uh, for people over age 55. We'll concentrate on retirement villages under the New South Wales Retirement Villages Act, but often as their trusted advisor, you're asked about um, different options. And I'll just mention the other options so you can clearly separate them out in your mind. Firstly, there's over 55 developments, and I'm talking mainly about New South Wales here, um, where development approval is simplified and basically it's a, a strata arrangement, but the resident must be over age 55. Is it just a strata title and that that is it? So there is no operator as such who organizes anything. It's basically just like a normal apartment. It just happens to be for over 55. That's that correct. Right? That's correct. Okay. So that means you basically just... It's like Buying any other apartment. You exactly you buy the unit, you pay body corporate fees, but the body corporate fees are similar to any other body body corporate fees yes, for a, an apartment block of that standard. But that's it. Yes, that's correct. And there is no government funding anything involved. The only difference is that because it's designated as over 55, so the developers found it easier to get the uh, permission. Yes. Yeah, to get the DA through. Yeah. Yes. Then um, we're talk also talking about retirement villages. These are under the Retirement Villages Act, and they're often called independent living units or self-care units. Some of the other options available are demountable homes and caravan parks. We won't talk about those today. There's also assisted living and service departments. These are also under the Retirement Villages Act and they provide usually a bed sitter where you can buy in a lot more services like laundry, meals um, and um, some care services for someone who may have entered a retirement village in an independent living unit but can no longer, due to health reasons, support themselves and require more assistance. So retirement village usually distinguishes between independent living unit and assisted living units, correct? Retirement yes. villages usually offer both. No, not always. Only um, it's not so common, but um, some retirement villages also offer assisted living. So it's not that common, but um, it is found in retirement villages and is um, governed by the New South Wales Retirement or the relevant Retirement Villages Act. So most retirement villages are just independent living? 
without service or assistance. And then some retirement villages also offer assisted living, but very few retirement villages would only offer assistant living, correct? That's correct. And often on the same campus, there may be a residential aged care facility, which is governed by the Commonwealth Aged Care Act. So although the aged care facility may be on the same campus next door, separate, and um, in both their management and the acts under which they have to operate. The independent living receives no government funding. You're, That's correct. You are on your own with those. The residential aged care receives heavy government funding if you pass the asset and income test. So that is what we had before, the red and DEP, if you don't pass the test, and the REC and DEC, if you do pass the test. What about the service departments? Do they receive any government assistance? In both independent living units in a retirement village and assisted living or service departments within retirement village and in your own home anywhere, you can receive a Commonwealth home care package or a Commonwealth Home Support Package. These are um, subsidised services from the Commonwealth Government and are accessed through ACAT, the Aged Care Assessment Team, and um, on MyGov. So that means independent living and assisted living slash service apartment, they don't receive any government funding. However, you can apply for home care in either the independent living unit or in an assisted living unit. You can apply for home care and that then has its own government funded scheme. Yes, that's correct. As you can in your own home in the suburbs anywhere. It's a retirement village unit is considered your own home and you can have home care or Commonwealth home support packages in a retirement village unit, home um, self-care or in assisted living. You just touched very briefly on caravan parks. They don't receive any government funding, do they? No, unless, they... Unless, of course, they, you apply for home care. Yes, but uh, there's also, if you're on an age pension, you actually don't... You rent the land, but you might own the caravan. So often there's rent assistance available to someone on Centrelink to assist with the rent of the land that the caravan sits on. Could you also receive rent assistance if you are renting an independent unit or an assisted living unit? If you don't um, buy them strata title, but if you've or even could you receive assistance with the ongoing operating costs? No, not so. Sometimes you can rent an assisted living apartment or a, a retirement village unit on a temporary basis. Uh, generally, you know, you're required to purchase, enter a purchase agreement. So potentially, yes, for a short period of time, you might be able to claim rent assistance if you meet the other requirements. Okay, so um, rent assistance is especially relevant for caravan parks or if you're still renting your own home? Yeah, uh, or renting the home you live in. So I might go run through some of the features of retirement village contracts. There's various ownership regimes in a retirement village. It could be lease sold, strata title, license company title, 
and less commonly rental, as we've said. The main features are that there's a deferred management fee. This is maybe 5% in the first year and 4% for subsequent years to a maximum of 32% or often the deferred management fees are now sitting around that 30 to 35% over a period of time that you live there. There's a recurrent fee, which is very much like a um, strata fee, which pays for the common areas and the maintenance and the uh, of the outside of the property and the common areas and other things provided a um, a retirement village unit might have a swimming pool, common areas, um, tennis courts, things like that that need to be paid for. Also, some of the services like um, garbage or rates for the overall property, depending on the ownership arrangement. So there's a, a recurrent fee. There's uh, also an agreement about first of all, what the deferred management fee is calculated on, whether it's the initial buy-in price or the final sale price, how capital gains, if it occurs, are shared or who receives it. And there's a range of services that the Retirement Village provides, which is worth looking at. I might run through some of the common issues and the concept of a a retirement village unit is you're moving into a lifestyle arrangement as well as having a lot of common areas uh, and basically only needing to be responsible for the inside of a unit which is typical of a you know a strata title arrangement Uh, the outside is um, the issue of the body corporate or the proprietor of the village. the fee. So there's a deferred management fee, which is usually 30 to 35% often of the original purchase price or possibly of the sales price. But the sales price is usually not known yet. That's correct. So usually then the purchase price. Yeah, that's correct. Some of the newer villages, some of the um, newer villages, uh, some of the features that um, are worth noting is often they have a a guaranteed sale period so that, that the agreed value of the property will be, after six months, will be released to the owner of the independent living unit. That might be important because they're moving into residential aged care. And some facility, uh, some villages, say if a brand new village has been built up the road, might have a lot of trouble in selling their units. So that could mean someone moving into residential aged care might be paying 4 or 5% interest on their unpaid accommodation bond or refundable accommodation deposit. So that can be important. The deferred management, management fee, fee is often a sunset clause after you move out for the yeah. return of the agreed value of the, of the property. Okay, so it basically says if you can't sell your property within six months, then we pay you the value of the property anyway, and this yes. value was agreed on at some some stage. Yeah. Often I think the value is set by a valuer that the uh, operator appoints, correct? In that case, they would have to have some agreed valuation process to pay you out after six months. 
but generally it's a market where buyers come in and decide how much they want to pay for to live in that retirement village. We deviated to talk about the sunset clause. The contract usually should have a sunset clause that if you want to get out, for example, because you have to go into aged care, because you're losing your marbles or something, then there's a struggle to sell it, then you definitely get your money so that you have the liquidity you need to pay the rent in the residential aged care. Correct. So now coming back to the recurring fees. So there is the deferred management fee of 30 to 35%, usually of the purchase price. And that is usually charged over the, the full 30 or 35% is usually charged over five to 10 years. So usually a, a higher payment upfront and then a recurring three or 5% over the remaining years, correct? Yeah, for each additional unit, uh, for each additional year of occupation, up to a maximum that might be six years, or might be 10 years, or five years, there's a, a deferred management fee, and it might be 3%, 6%, or it might be a cascading, it might start off first year 8%, second year 5%, and then 3% for the next uh, five years or something of that yeah. sort. So that, that would mean that it's usually of benefit to move into the retirement village relatively early and then to live a very long and healthy life because you pay the deferred management fee over 10 years, but then after that, you don't pay anything anymore. So if, if you move in when you're 55 and you live until you're 95, you basically live there for 40 years, but you only pay the management fee for 10 of them. Yeah, that's correct. But as with human nature, often we leave it too late to make these changes. So the I think the average age of someone entering a retirement village unit is 77. Yes. So we leave that decision very late in life and um, sometimes too long. More generally, now the deferred management fee is over a period of five or six years because I presume because people go in later and um, the proprietor gets his money back. If they, don't, um, if they only remain in the village for you know five or six years. But so have you seen, because it would actually be in the operator's interest to basically then move anybody on after six years when they've paid the final installment of the deferred management fee. Have you seen that residents get moved on to residential aged care earlier than, I don't know how to put it, but you know, there's a financial interest for operators of retirement villages to basically move people on after they paid the final lot of their deferred management fee. Yes, generally, um, there's some protection there for the resident, but in the contract, there usually is a health clause, which says, you know, if to doctors agree that um, or certify that the person's no longer able to safely stay in their unit and they might uh, even with things like home care packages then they might have to leave. Yeah and John these assessments can they be done by a GP of the family's choice or is it a GP that the uh, operator chooses? And that usually would be defined in the uh, contract you know how that process would work and you're right there is um, if you like an incentive for unscrupulous uh, proprietors to move people on and sometimes it might be it may be in the contract if the proprietor also has a serviced apartment 
or um, assisted living apartments on the same campus, then there may be an arrangement where they can transfer the amount they've paid in the independent living unit to the service department, or they may have to buy in separately to the service department and go through another period of um, deferred management fees. So that's a very important point to check in the contract, because the risk is that you pay your deferred management fee for six years after the final instalment, you're enticed to move into a service department, you pay another round of six years of deferred management fees, and then after that, you're enticed to move into an aged care facility yeah. on the premises. So the operator would have a financial interest to move you around every six years. Yes, uh, being very cynical, potentially that could happen. From the other end, where some aged care providers under the Aged Care Act may also have the normal aged care rooms, but it may also have rooms that are assisted living, which are much larger, have kitchenettes and these sort of facilities in the rooms. And with the, uh, this may suit a couple where one member of a couple requires, you know, assisted living services and the other member of the couple may require um, to live in an aged care facility. And for couples, whether you enter a retirement village, it's well worth having a look around at what aged care facilities around because often at that end of um, your client's life, they may not have a license and may need to be able to walk to the aged care facility to visit their partner. So uh, it's less, very less common for an aged care facility to have a service department attached to it. It is not uncommon for a retirement village to have independent living units and a service department. So when a couple go into care, it's useful to look around and see as their health deteriorates, especially when a home care package isn't um, suitable for them to keep them in an independent living unit. Is there a service department on the campus nearby or an aged care facility close to where the retirement village is? These are considerations when you're looking at a couple. So when you're looking at a, at a single person due to divorce or similar, then you don't need to worry about that so much because it can be just any aged care facility within a radius around yes. relatives or so. But of course, when you have a couple, then you need to plan a lot more what happens if the care needs of one are different to the care needs of the other spouse. Yeah, so it's important to have a look at the contract to see how the contract deals, especially older contracts, how they deal with all these issues. And I'll go through some of the other common things. Sorry to interrupt you again. So going through the fee, so we covered the deferred management fee. Then you mentioned the recurring fee. Can you reject my memory? What was the recurring well, uh, fee about again? Okay. The recurring fee is analogous to the strata fee that you'd have on any shared development. But it's the fee received by the proprietor for managing the common areas of the property and the outside of the buildings. So they take care of, as I said, depending on the uh, ownership arrangement, they might pay rates to the, to the local government. They would pay insurance on the 
all the buildings. So is it more that the strata fee covers like what the body corporate covers in any apartment block? So keeping the garden maintained, paying government charges, etc. And then the recurring fee is the fee to run the common area. So the, the reception and the cafe or the hobby yes. room or, you know, additional facilities that a retirement village offers that a normal apartment block wouldn't offer. Yes, that's correct. And you can see in a retirement village, often you might have very intelligent people that have um, had significant positions and jobs and that usually there's a residence committee which interacts with the provider to determine uh, or negotiate what the recurrent fees will be for the facility. And as you can imagine, uh, with a lot of, uh, in villages with a lot of intelligent people who have had significant positions in life, it can be a very uh, rambunctious arrangement. I also want political, to, I imagine. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about um, modern offerings in terms of retirement villages. Some providers of retirement villages have got a lot smarter and they look at the interaction of what their entry contribution is and to assist the client maximise their age pension and have a more useful um, outcome. So often they might have three or four levels of entry contribution. One entry contribution may be much higher than the standard and it might mean there's no deferred management fee taken out when you leave. So you get 100% of your contribution back, but initially you pay more. The standard arrangement might be a 5% deferred management fee for six years and you pay a lower entry contribution. And the third option may be you pay a lot lower entry contribution, but you might have a 25% deferred management fee over four years. And so if you haven't got a lot of money, you can purchase your spot, but when you leave, you don't um, get anything back um, after four years. So depending on your own financial arrangements, and typically people have sold a home to buy in or pay the entry contribution into a retirement village, if they have, a couple have a large amount of money left over, then they may not receive any pension or the pension card. By them paying a higher entry contribution and getting 100% of that um, entry contribution back when they leave, it may actually allow them to receive a part pension. And remember, if they're asset tested and they reduce their assets under the maximum cap, then they receive the equivalent of a 7.8% benefit under the asset test as an increase in age pension. So that can be work out very well um, for the new resident. So to use an example, they sell their family home for 1.5 million. If they paid very little deferred management fee at the start, they wouldn't qualify for the age pension because with 1.5 million, you definitely have busted the asset test. But then if you pay this 1.5 million into the uh, retirement village as some kind of deposit, then you 
receive the age pension and at the end when you leave you get some some part of your 1.5 million back yes probably you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't want to pay the whole amount into the just um, to get exactly just yeah. to get below the asset test thresholds so for instance if a couple homeowner which they would be if they bought into a time village they can have assets of $395,000 and get the full rate of couple age pension and so the upper limit for a couple homeowner in assets for the age pension is $870,000 rounding so if for instance paying the standard entry fee they had $880,000 left over well they wouldn't get an age pension however if they paid an additional let's say $200,000 as an entry contribution and they would get um, 100% of their entry contribution back then on that would um, lower their asset limit to $680,000 and on that roughly $200,000, $190,000, they would get the equivalent of a 7.8% benefit in terms of an age pension, plus the, if you like, the fringe benefits of having a health card, which often people say is worth two or $3,000 a year. And this deposit that you basically just get back, so it's basically just like a bank deposit, that doesn't count for the uh, Centrelink asset test? No, it's considered the home. And so it's exempt for Centrelink asset um, test. And downsizing also from a home to a retirement village, often that leaves over additional capital and that provides more money to live on. There are other options. No matter what your age is, you're entitled to pay $300,000 each into super as a downsizer contribution. And... That often ensures that that money is invested more aggressively than it would be if it was put in the bank and also reduces the chances that the retired couple might pay tax because money, an allocated pension or account-based pension, the assets aren't taxed on their earnings and the income drawn isn't taxed. So I might cover some of the other things that you'd expect to find in a contract, and this is an exclusive. It might outline what the common property is, swimming pools, men's sheds, veggie garden plots, all uh, potting sheds, cinemas, and other, other entertainment areas. It might um, have restrictions on where you can park your car in the retirement village, whether you have an, a separate unit, which is a garage, what you can do in the gardens around your property or common property in terms of gardening, how and where you can use lock screens and other fixtures on your unit. It'll talk about responsibilities for maintaining the visual, the visual issues around units, not having washing hanging out the front, uh, might stipulate that you need to make sure your windows are clean, where you can store, store things, noise, garbage. And probably what I didn't um, start off saying is there's generally um, a requirement that people are over age 55 when they enter, and there can be some, some adjustments to that in terms of uh, 
a child that might have a disability that might enter the village along with a parent. It will also, if you have, uh, if you have other people coming to stay, you might need the permission of the retirement village operator. So there are restrictions. Who decides who can buy the unit? Can you just sell to anybody or does the operator have a final say on whether the new owner is accepted or not? As I understand it in New South Wales, um, you can, when, if you want to sell a retirement village unit, you can engage any real estate agent, but often they don't understand the issues around retirement villages. And usually the proprietor of the village has their own sales team. So essentially it's that contract which determines, you know, who can stay there and under what circumstances. Oh, you mean who can buy the unit and then stay yes. there? Yes, yeah. Okay. The contract has to outline who has the final say yeah. in this. And then the other question is, you mentioned before that retirement villages can take several forms. There's A, just the outright purchase of a strata title. Then you mentioned a leasehold. And then you mentioned, I think, two or, two or three uh, other. A loan license agreement, very few company titles now. And... Um, Uh, under some circumstances, you can rent a unit. Usually, if you're buying into an independent living unit, the retirement village is very flexible in accepting deposits and maybe accept a small holding deposit. They may allow you to rent for a period of time. There may be some arrangement during the sale process of your home to move into the uh, retirement village. Um, often there's quite flexible arrangements there uh, for, okay. the, for, for the retirement village to secure the sale of uh, one of their independent living units. Strata title is very straightforward. It's a contract like any other purchase of of land. But then I understand that if when you buy it strata titled, the retirement village actually holds a charge over the land, like a mortgage. And this way controls that you can't sell the unit to somebody they don't approve of and that you can only sell when you have paid all your fees, I assume. Yes, that's correct. The ownership arrangement in general terms is more important for Issues like whether you pay stamp duty on the purchase of the uh, um, uh, independent living unit, whether you're responsible for council rates individually. So is the purchase of a retirement village unit when you buy the strata title, is that subject to stamp duty? I think uh, for a strata title it is, but for these other arrangements, more commonly sort of loan license type arrangements, uh, you're not required to pay stamp duty and the ownership of the land remains with the proprietor of the village. Before our talk, we, we already spoke briefly and you mentioned that strata title is actually not very common anymore for retirement village units. Is that why? Yeah, th that may have something to, uh, to do with the move to more of these loan license arrangements, but it probably gives also the proprietor a lot more control. Possibly what we also want to talk about with the contracts, um, and I don't know how you want to put this together, but the contract will also outline what sort of uh, dispute process, whether you can keep animals, And um, generally, um, in a retirement village situation, 
you're only responsible for insurance of contents and personal effects within the unit. The whole topic of capital gains we briefly touched on, that's only relevant when you have a strata title contract, correct? Because No, it isn't. Even um, uh, these other arrangements, the value of the unit may go up over time or it may actually go down. So it's um, also useful to keep an eye on what's happening in the area in terms of new villages and what the potential sale might be. Oh, okay, so even with leasehold and loan license agreement, you have a potential issue of a capital loss or what's happening to a capital gain? Yeah, it's more how the capital gain is treated where the property sold for more than what you purchased it for. You say what the property sold for, but when you have a leasehold, you wouldn't sell, the property wouldn't be sold, correct? Well, the lease would be sold effectively, oh, okay. I suppose. Okay. And so that's how a capital gain might arise. But or a capital yeah. loss, depending yeah. on. Okay, yeah. good. So you Pro actually pay for receiving the right to have a leasehold or a loan license yes. agreement. Yeah, the other thing that might be covered in the agreement is whether you're required to reinstate the unit or whether that's um, part of what the deferred management fee pays for. Yes, okay, good point. Might finish off by saying, you know, this is a legal agreement And it's important that you have it reviewed by a solicitor who is familiar with these types of agreements. When I looked at this contract that included a strata title retirement unit, there was a talk that the operator will be representing the unit owner in the body corporate meetings. So basically meaning the unit holders don't have any say in the body corporate meetings. Is that yeah. a concern or is that something you see on a regular basis? No, that's something I haven't um, seen. It's really important to understand, you know, how the residence committee is um, set up and how they interact with the uh, proprietor of the village, you know, to provide services. quite common to put a charge on a strata title retirement unit? No, because I, I know around where I live, there's only two strata title places that I know of. And you could understand that they'd need to put some sort of charge on it. So they have some, first of all, they've got to get their deferred management fees and other costs back mm -hmm. and also control you know, who's going in and what's yes. happening. Because But, otherwise somebody yeah. could just be sitting in their unit. It belongs to them. Yeah. They don't pay any deferred management fee. They just stop paying. Yeah. And it would be very difficult for the operator to then get get their money. But now with this charge, they can sell the unit if the unit holder doesn't pay. Yes, that's right, I suppose. The other thing is they're quite, you actually, if you go in as a couple, you both sign as you know, uh, owners of the, when I say owners, owners of the arrangement under which you occupy the unit. For instance, if you had a child with a disability that was living with you, they wouldn't be on that contract. And when you both have to move out, the parents, so would the child in that arrangement too. You know, so it's related, you know, and you can see why they do that. For instance, you can't just have anyone living in there and 
it um, of course doesn't you know pass to your children if you move out the way they get their money is that when you move out there's that preferred management fee okay very good point what is your observation do you find most contracts are, are fair and straightforward and one doesn't need to worry so much about it? Or is your experience one needs to really go through these contracts with a fine comb because there are a lot of operators out there who put potential time bombs into these contracts? I think it's important with, um, you know, that's uh, subjective, if you like, to yes, say, say things like that. But I think you're entering a lifestyle arrangement And it's not an investment in property, generally speaking. So it's important to understand what you're paying for it and also to in involve maybe um, your, your children in that decision so that they understand um, what might happen when the property is sold and the using a solicitor to go through all those points and outline you know what could be problems for you um generally speaking a provider has to do something that's reasonable and in terms of deferred management fees it's hard to really make an objective uh, view on whether the deferred management fees are reasonable and what they pay for and how they um, provide profit to the aged care of the for the um, provider of the village welcome back so the critical questions to ask are fees what fees do you need to pay and when there are usually th at least three fees the deferred management fee that is by far the largest a recurring fee and a strata fee but then also especially You need to ask about what happens later on when all deferred management fees are paid and health and additional care becomes an issue. And when you want or need to move out or you don't want to move out, but the uh, facility wants you to move. All this is really important to sort out now. In the next episode, episode 257, Ellie Garrett of All In Advisory We'll talk about how she found her niche and uses this niche as a marketing engine. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.